Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, I am Sebastian Teotrio. I'm Alex Hollingsworth. Welcome to The Hidden Curriculum, a podcast where we talk about all the stuff you didn't learn in graduate school. Hey everyone, hope that you had a great week. We are very excited to bring you an episode today. Uh, before we get started, uh, Sebastian, I want to know what is your go-to like news source? Like if you're just going to go like on your phone, you're going to check oh, the news, what do you use? Okay, well, it depends on which country I want the news from. So like Fair. obviously I'm, I'm, a, I'm a dual, so I got to take care of Peru and the United States. So if I want to know about United States, I actually use an application called Winmo. And it's essentially an application that only gives you headlines a day right um, and oh. nothing else. And then they can link it to uh, a, a particular different kind of sources of articles. So um, I use That's cool. That. I've never heard of that before. Yeah, it's pretty nice because it only gives you kind of like what you need to know for a particular topic rather than a whole take. And because they edit the headlines to not be clickbaity rather than to be like, this is the fact, it, it kind of like fills just a little bit of that noise. Um, and then for, I would say for Peru, there is a, a, a website that I follow that is news that I follow. It's called Ojo Publico, which stands for like public eye. Um, and I really love their work and I even donate money to them because I love their work. Um, and that's, that's what my go-to. Yeah. That, that's great. Yeah. What about you? <laughs> so I, I probably being honest, it's, it's New York Times just because my university pays yeah. for New York Times subscription. So I awesome. you know, I have to worry about like, you know, stupid paywall after five articles or something. Yes. Um, and then like, if I want to know something that's like, I see in there and I'm like, Oh, this is happening right away. I'll like so just go on Twitter and search it often. Yeah. Just like see what people are posting. So I don't follow enough like general people to get my news through Twitter. Like I, I hear people say that and I only get like the, I mean, obviously the big news, but like I get a lot of takes from Twitter, but not a lot of yeah, news from Twitter. I think. That's fair. I guess. I mean, once I see a thing, if I'm like, Oh, that's interesting to me. Like this whole like canal thing, then the Suez canal. I like type it in Twitter, see what's going on. What yeah. about you, Abdul? I'm avoiding news at this point. <laughs> <laughs> it's 2021. 2020 is over. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. No, I'm avoiding news. I have been so focused on uh, just getting my classes going, and I found that uh, news was distracting. So if it doesn't get to me through uh, individual conversations, then I don't know about it. It's almost like well, you there. read a book called Make Time. <laughs> I, I have not but it sounds oh, okay. like i should read it <laughs> i think this is the third week in a row sebastian has recommended this book in some way or another so i, I need to read it yeah. we all need to that's funny well our special guest today is abdullah al-barani he's an associate professor of economics and the director of the center of economics of education at northern kentucky university his research focuses on the economics of education and the role of information in economic decision-making and market outcomes. He is the recipient of the very fun to say, Kenneth G. Elzinga Distinguished <laughs> Teaching Award and the Excellence in Teaching and Instruction Award in 2020, 2016, and got a Dean Citation Award in 2015, among many other awards. 
uh, <clears throat> and they all recognize his passion and ability for teaching. Uh, Abdullah, thank you for being here with us today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm really excited to be here. Uh, this is one of my favorite podcasts, so uh, it's a dream come true. Uh, this is awesome. <laughs> this is also a, a, a very nice collab um, for our listeners. If you guys don't know, Abdullah has a really cool uh, YouTube channel that we'll put it down in, in the show notes, but um, I feel like this is a nice collab. Also, I have a question before we move on. I have a question for Alex, Econ Trivia. Alex, who is Kenneth Elsinga? I just failed the trivia. <laughs> uh, so I didn't know this until I came to UVA. He's a professor here at UVA who's been teaching principles of, I think, micro or macro for like years. Like we're talking like lots like of years. He's an institution. He's an institution. He um, yeah. And so uh, I only know that because when I came to UVA, I was like, oh, my gosh, this Kenneth Olsinga guy. He has an award in his name. That's a big deal. I didn't know that. He is an amazing name in addition to being an amazing <laughs> yeah. instructor. Before uh, we get into everything, we've got to know, Abdul, what's a, what's a fun fact? Give us some, something to add a little color to yes. uh, our picture of you. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I, as I said, I'm a fan of the show and I hear this question often on your podcast and I'm always stumped because I was like, if I'm ever on the show, what will my one fact be? <laughs> and uh, I can't figure it out, but... Given the theme of the show and the hidden curriculum aspect of it, um, I'll tell you a secret of how I got through my PhD program. And this is the fun fact. That sounds good. Um, that sounds important. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, and, and you've talked about this before, the need to find an outlet through your PhD program, something to take you away. So I picked up photography and, you know, just try to learn as much about photography. It was a way for me to escape my office and give, an, give myself an excuse to walk around campus with, with a camera and pay attention to the small details that are not uh, economic theory or, mm-hmm. um, you know, data. And mm-hmm. actually, it, it allowed me to, to, to find uh, my, my center, if you may, get me through the PhD program. So any PhD students out there, find an outlet. Mine was photography. If you want to talk about photography, I would love to anytime. Cool. So I do have a question. What are you, are you mirrorless, mirrored? What system are you in? Uh, Sebastian and I are both nerdy techno lovers. So we have so many questions. So I started with the Canon Rebel series. That was my entry level um, DSLR. Mm -hmm. Now I shoot entirely with a mirrorless uh, A6600 Sony. It's really good with video um, and, uh, you know, for my YouTube channel. So it's multi-purpose, but I have several cameras laying around, um, uh, but I'm gravitating mostly to the Sony A6600. I have a question (laughs) for you about your picture. Do you have a nice Instagram? Yes. So at Dr. A Albarani, nice is, uh, you know, up to you all to decide, but, (laughs) but it exists. Um, And, you know, it's one of those things where I'm trying to figure out what exactly is uh, I'm doing with the Instagram. I've tried in the past to do like little mini, I I used to call them uh, econ minis. So they're okay. like, you know, carousels with some economic topics to just mm-hmm. engage my students. And sometimes it's just like, hey, look, the leaves are changing color. <laughs> let me let me write a little Well, I thought you would just put your, your pictures there. I didn't realize you're trying to make it educational. Uh, you know, everything needs to be educational. It kind of goes with the brand uh, that I'm trying to push out there. Before we dive into today's topic, uh, we want to hear a little bit about your work. We got some in the introduction, but we'd love to hear from you about anything that you want to promote or share with our listeners? So research-wise, my focus right now is on the returns to financial literacy. I'm interested in 
racial differences in accumulation of financial knowledge and whether financial literacy education levels the playing field. We always talk about financial literacy education as being the silver bullet that's going to solve all our lives problems. Um, and I'm trying to understand if that kind of helps level the playing field. And mainly my interest there is widening racial wealth gap and the role of financial literacy. So that's one, one area of research that I'm spending my time on. But as a center director, Center for Economic Education director, I do a lot of pedagogy and economic education research. And that's where I spend most of my time um, either doing research or reaching out to the community to do workshops, mm -hmm. just increasing access to and the quality of economic education, as I say, my YouTube channel. I have a question about financial literacy education, like broadly. Yeah. Are we talking about just like, hey, this is what interest is. This is how you think about money across time. Are we thinking about like actual classes or like a, a course in high school or like what, what level are we, uh, do yeah. we mean here? Like, where do we think impact begins? Uh, so, so I have a personal response and then I have a research response. Uh, the personal response, my view is financial literacy education should happen as early as possible and as often as possible. You know, I have a colleague that I recently had on my YouTube channel, um, Jane Wagner, and she, she brought up a really good point that financial literacy is the only education that we provide one time and then we assess, assess it uh, for its efficacy. Um, whereas, you know, you know, nobody says, hey, what'd you learn in 10th grade history, right? So, my view is we need to provide it as often as possible, and it really fits with the curriculum. Um, you know, if you're talking about history, um, history to me sounds so much better when the economics is uh, brought to light, um, because economics is always in the background. As far as the research component, this is where we struggle in financial literacy uh, research, is we don't really define what financial literacy is from an assessment or measurement standpoint. Do you mean like... Is financial literacy typically evaluated by like, did you make correct decisions? Or is it like, it's not like you right. take a quiz, right? As you're saying. Well, actually there is a quiz that we kind of go to at the high school level. There's a, uh, a, a, an assessment. And then in my research, because I'm using surveys, I rely on what's called the big five financial literacy questions. And um, they're, you know, basic to us um, because we're familiar with the, with the mm -hmm. questions. But the average person scores, or the average in the United States is 59%. So the average American uh, fails a financial literacy test as we define what financial literacy is. Mm -hmm. And then in the research, it's very subjective. Did you pay your bills on time? Uh, we define that as good financial behavior. Yeah, um, you know, yeah. so it's, it's, it's still an infant uh, research arena. So anybody's interested in that, there's a lot of uh, headway to make. I love this kind of stuff. It reminds me of uh, these questions. So I, I teach a course that's basically like, what is health insurance? And uh, I, st I took a question directly from this NPR article where they go around and ask different health insurance executives and people like a person has this deductible, this premium and this copay, and then they face this bill. What do they owe? And it's mm -hmm. the same thing. I forget the stat off the top of my head, but it was like 30% of like health insurance people could answer this question. It's sort of embarrassing, but it's, it's, it fits right in this realm that like, this is a pretty important thing. I, you should probably understand it or you're going to end up paying for forever. I was going to ask, does this mean that you are like uh, really good with your finances and we should be asking you questions about where to... Yeah, what stock should we yeah. be? 
Yeah, I mean, that, that whole question, what stock should we get, right? So when we talk about finances, my students, that's what they're interested in. Like, uh, yeah. Dr. A, GameStop, GameStop, what do you think? Yeah, right? Right. More GameStop um, to the moon. <laughs> so, you know, and, and financial literacy encompasses more than that. And are we providing that information to, to the public, to, to our students? Can they navigate health insurance, like uh, Alex said? Can they navigate uh, 401k? Can they def figure out the trade-offs between renting or home ownership? Mm -hmm. You know, in, in the U.S., we push, push home ownership as uh, arriving to this American dream. But, you know, home ownership uh, restricts your mobility. Right. Uh, is that something that fits into, into your decision-making process? Do you want to be mobile? And we don't push that uh, enough as, you know, these are, some of these things are subjective and you have to evaluate your own personal preferences. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I um, There's a, a peer of mine, his name is Adam Levy, and with Dior Freeberg, they have this paper where they're using data from this unnamed university. Uh, the, people's decisions are what plan they use for health insurance. And then they see the actual expenditures and like, you know, to try to figure out which plan they would have like saved money or whatever. But then they link into their retirement insurance and, uh, sorry, retirement 401k decisions. And it's like a really interesting paper where, if you know, if you think that these people are making this really good decisions on 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 one aspect of their life, and they're making decisions on this other aspect of their life, and the answer is not necessarily. And I think this gets back to the point that even even if you think you're understanding one product, which is maybe retirement or health insurance, that doesn't mean you're going to understand the other products. So we can I can only imagine that even if you don't understand any of the products, right? Like what kind of decisions we are making, and that seems super relevant. <laughs> We'd love to hear a little bit about your workflow. People love this segment. Um, just how do you approach day-to-day -day work? Um, that could be research or teaching. Um, we're just trying to get a realistic picture of uh, how you get it all done. So workflow has been something that's uh, near and dear to me for the, you know, especially since the pandemic started. It's uh, required all of us to figure out what uh, we're doing as, as the world changes. But this is my typical day-to-day -day activity. Um, 4 a.m. wake up. 4 a.m.? Yes, 4 a.m. wake well, that's up. Well, that's a dumb starter. No, I'm just <laughs> and, and everybody's like, oh, 4 a.m., you know, there you go. We can't continue this yeah, conversation. Yeah. But I just shift my right. daytime hours, right? Because I go to bed like 8.30. Yesterday, I had a meeting from 7.30 to 9.30. I was falling asleep in the meeting because <laughs> it's like way past my bedtime. Right. But, but the reason I shift my work hours is I found that my productive time, my creative time sure. is like five to seven, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So I spend those first two hours of my day, not talking to anybody, not, you know, sometimes right. I'll check email, but I use it for either writing or, you know, just creative things that require me to think out of the box. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and then the rest of the day is all task oriented. So I have to work out every day. I've learned that about myself. It's my wow. mental health time. Um, so I allocate an hour, but usually by nine o'clock I'm at my desk and I'm in meetings because of, uh, of the center for economic education. Uh, I'm in meetings from nine till about five, right? So sometimes back to back, sometimes I have short breaks, but I don't have that work time. And that's one thing that I, I miss. I miss being just, uh, you know, strictly, uh, research oriented right. or teaching oriented, um, but yeah, my, my calendar, uh, I don't own it between nine to, to five. Wow. So that's, what about prepping for classes or anything like that? 
it has to happen after, after or oh, wow. um, early in the morning. Yeah. So, so then you have between five and eight to do that kind of work. That's intense. So I'm teaching a new course this semester and it's taken up a, a lot of my time and new prep. So then a weekends also then places, times where you work then? Yeah, you know, just to be realistic and not to send uh, the wrong signal, I I operate under this, what I call manage chaos, right? <laughs> okay. So I have to have way too many things going on. Otherwise, if I have downtime, I don't feel like, um, I, I just feel better with more things going on. So I overcommit uh, and I like it. Um, but yeah, so that's that's my life. So usually after five Lately, what I've been doing because of, you know, uh, just being conscious of being sitting in front of the computer all day in Zoom calls is, and the weather is better. So now between five and six, I force myself to go for a walk um, to kind of break the day and get away from the Mm -hmm. desk and clear my mind. It's probably one of the best things that I've incorporated. That is, that's an intense work schedule. And particularly when you wake up that morning, how do you pick what you're going to do with this special protected time? Like, do you pick the night before? Like, or are you just like, I'm working on this project until it's done. And I spend my time in the morning on like whatever project as your priority at the moment. Yeah. So, so I have a to-do list, uh, keep a, in a note section. I know you guys care where, where you keep your to-do list. (laughs) We we love all the technology. (laughs) Yeah. And, and, you know, I've tried Asana, I've tried all of them, but notes is just more, more flexible for me. Um, so I usually go through that the night before I'll create my to-do list for the next day. And the night before I'll look at my meetings for the next day, kind of mentally prepare for them. Um, and then when I wake up at 4am, uh, I'll allow myself usually like 30 minutes to hang around. Um, I'm a coffee drinker, so I drink a lot of coffee, uh, espresso specifically, and then get my day started. I'm trying to think of like the time then left to do stuff like research and YouTube. So like, does research get punted to the summer maybe, or, and then how does you embed this YouTube work in it? Because I don't, it's hard for me to think that you're not spending time in the weekends doing this because that would be super productive. So I don't know. Talk to me about that. No. So part of my meetings are calendar blocks meetings with my co-authors to to do some research. I see. I see. I see. Fridays tend to be calendar blocks to, to meet with my co-authors, uh, you know, connect. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the reason I have to calendar block is if I don't put it on the calendar, it gets taken up by totally you know, somebody seeing that my calendar. By the way, this is the worst invention that anybody's created, that we all could see each other's calendars. People keep uh, saying this in the podcast, and I don't know. I don't know how this happened to me. I keep my calendar <laughs> private. It, it bothers me. A lot, actually. So, like, I have people, they'll be like, oh, I saw that you were free during this block. So, I, like, exactly. added this meeting. I'm like, I don't, like, do you want, should I be scheduling my sleep in this calendar? <laughs> like, I don't, like. But no, how, just how I can they not, see yeah. your calendar is what the, the thing that I don't understand. It's Outlook. But yeah. if I keep my calendar in, in Google, how can, like, they always then see. Then they'll think you're free all the time. Yeah. yeah. But that, that's I, I get it. It's part of why I hate it. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, so that's pretty much my workflow. Um, okay. It's just calendar blocking and setting aside time for, for research. But, you know, the reality of it with a, with a center responsibility, my research output um, is, is much lower than I would like. But um, I get right. rewards in other, in other areas like oh. outreach and impact. 
today we want to talk about new things, quote unquote, or innovations that are happening in the teaching world. Abdullah not only has teaching awards, which is great, but also has been really connected and talking to a bunch of people in this uh, community to teach economics. Now, uh, lessons here don't necessarily just apply to economics. You'll see that they're applied to any kind of uh, subject. So it could be a lot broader than that. So let's start at the beginning, as I always like to say. Can you tell us a little bit about your career path and, and how do you got where where you are exactly? Um, so I'll start at birth. I was born in yeah. uh, Muscat, Oman. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, no, I mean, it, it's an important aspect because uh, part of my career is this identity of being an, an immigrant uh, of Middle Eastern nationality, uh, of Omani nationality specifically. Um, so are you I, an I, Omanian? I in... Omanian? Is that uh, the right word? Omani. Omani. Dang it. Okay, mm-hmm. sorry. Yeah, they always get you. They switch it up. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. The Omanese, you never know. Right? Exactly, you never know. Oh, no. But the fact that you asked, I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I grew up in, in Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, actually, the reason I end up in Louisville, Kentucky as an Omani is my mom was doing her PhD at the University of Louisville in education. Oh, wow. So that's when I got introduced to graduate school and the idea of that and watched her work on her dissertation, helped her actually enter data as a, <gasps> as a teenager. <laughs> as um, a pre-doc. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, but I did my undergrad at the University of Louisville in business economics. I started off actually as a chemical engineer major. Oh, and then wow. I, did a, I did a master's at American University. And the fun fact here is... I had no idea that you could go into a PhD directly from undergrad. I thought you had to do a master's because I was getting my advice from my mom, who's in education, mm-hmm. and you know they—that's the path. But in hindsight, I probably was not ready for a PhD, anyways, at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, so I graduated with my master's during the best times in the world, during the <laughs> housing boom uh, between so 2003, and I uh, started selling mortgages. Um, oh, wow. Loved it. Loved it. It was a great time. Learned a lot about people, their financial decision-making mm-hmm. process. Totally. And it actually is the reason that I went to get a, to get a PhD is because I mm. wanted to understand what was happening in the market because everything that I was seeing in this real world did not apply uh, exactly the way I had learned in economic textbooks. Your reasoning about entering the PhD sounds really interesting to me. And I want to ask okay. you a little bit about that, which is, sure. I mean, if I want to know more, I read a book. I don't say I'm going to spend the next five years in a dirty basement doing hard algebra, you know, like, yeah. so it had to be a little bit more than just curiosity, you know? I think a lot of curiosity and I was reading books and I wasn't getting what I wanted to get. And what I realized is maybe I didn't know how to seek that information. So I needed guidance in how to seek information. And it's probably the best thing that's happened to my life was going into a PhD program, just the mentorship and the guidance, especially Mm -hmm. at the University of Kentucky. Obviously, I don't know other places, but I enjoyed my, my time there. And yes, I feel like in hindsight, maybe at that time, I didn't know exactly what I was looking for, but the mm-hmm. decision I made helped me get to where I want to be, right? Mm-hmm. So, That's so interesting. As an aside, you have to have won the geographic consistency lottery here, right, for Northern Kentucky. Like that <laughs> yeah, is like, yeah. you always hear someone like, well, like, I only got into one school, so I went to Alaska. And yeah, the yeah. Next, the only job I got was in Florida, so I had no family and friends near me. And you're like, you're talking drivable distances here. Yeah, that's phenomenal. Yeah. Like, right? So it I, must I, be intentional, I, right? 
I've hit the three major cities in the state of Kentucky, Louisville, <laughs> Lexington, and then the Northern Kentucky, which is a collection of uh, cities. It's just um, Cincinnati. Yeah. Whoa, 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 whoa. Just kidding. Watch out. Watch out. Cincinnati's (laughs) airport is in Kentucky. All right. I'm I'm familiar. It's all just one big city to my mind. This interview is over with. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, ended up in Northern Kentucky was not, was not uh, a fluke. Um, you know, the job came open and, uh, I was, ref- they were looking for an economic education, um, oh. so economics education specialist. And I had started to create a, a name for myself in that ar- arena. So, um, it was a good, it's been a great place to be. Um, and one of the things, and the reason that I'm creating this YouTube channel and interviewing economic educators is I feel in our profession, we highlight the R1 institutions a lot, and mm-hmm. we don't highlight enough of the quality of life and the research uh, that exists at uh, you know the other types of institutions that are out there. So I think it's my role to talk about uh, you know how successful you can be and how enjoyable of a life you could have um, outside of R1. By the way, to our listeners, this is... This is not just him. There is a community of people that are dedicated to this. I ran into this community, I believe, as a discussant on a, on a session at Southerns. And I went into the session and I was like, oh, this is a little bit different from you know, what I hear. It's all about how to uh, educate when it comes to like economics. And there was just like a bunch of people that already knew each other. And they were like, you know, it was just I was like, oh, this is a community of people that really care and are thinking really thoughtfully about this that – I guess I didn't know it existed, but I think that's just because of what you're saying right now, which is like, it's not as valuable, which is kind of weird because then we're talking about how we, how we're teaching. And I think maybe now there's been a shift because of social media about people crowdsourcing and asking questions of like, Hey, there's an example then that now people are starting to notice that this is something uh, super valuable. And then that you can rely on this, this, you know, set of in, community at least that has put a lot of work into it. It's one of the reasons that um, I have emphasized the work that I do on YouTube so much because the pandemic, when the pandemic happened, everybody was searching for questions about how do we shift our pedagogy? How do we teach effectively in online education? And the voice that was not sought is all of these amazing economic educators that are out there. So you know, it's easy to look at the community and say, hey, community, you're not listening to us. You're not coming to us. Or there's another way to look at, at it and say, well, hey, economic educators, have you not done a good job of mm. communicating that you exist? Right. And, you know, I just want to make sure that I, I market that, hey, we, there is a resource out here for you if you want to know how to use Zoom to engage people. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Tell us a little bit about the innovations that you have seen. Maybe highlight a couple that you think are, are really interesting. And maybe I can start with one, which um, I think you talked about in one of your videos, which is how to use podcasts into your class and teaching. Yeah. So, you know, podcasts are really easy way to engage students with the seeing economics. I know it's a, a audio, but having them <laughs> see the connections of what they're learning to, to the outside world. You as an educator, you go into your class and you give all these examples. And sometimes students don't see how that's applicable to what's happening now. They think, you know, it's Sebastian and Alex, they're, you know, they're geeky, they love econ, they see it everywhere. <laughs> but how can you bring in the news? How can you bring in things that are happening? 
And, and then how can you create assignments around that? So my colleague, uh, Rebecca Morrill uh, at Emmanuel College uh, has a couple of papers and I'll share them with you so you could include them as part of the notes on how to use podcasts, specifically how to get students to create their own podcasts about economic concepts and news in their everyday life. And, you know, that active learning aspect has been, you know, it's been shown that students learn better when they're participating that way. So that's, uh, you know, those are going to be good resources for somebody that's looking for that. I have a question just logistically. So I've, I don't have podcast assignments. I have video based assignments in some of my classes. And I often find it like hard, like where do I draw the line between like appropriate content versus like quality of production or presentation? Um, what, what is the literature or you just your own personal experience say about like, how do you like push students to, to enjoy the assignment without making it seem like, you know, without them wasting their effort trying to like mimic like, you know, like something as high quality, like what you produce? Yeah, I, I think benchmarking is a good way of uh, getting students to understand the quality that needs to be produced. So, you know, w when you give an assignment, you always give a rubric or sometimes you give a rubric however way you do it. Uh, giving them examples of previous projects kind of sets the bar of where your expectations are on quality of uh uh, quality of production. But from my standpoint, and this is something that we're taking on with some of our projects, is our students need to be able to use technology, they need, need to be able to communicate effectively. So can we create assignments that require them to develop those skills, right? So we always say that we're, we're econ folks, right? Well, I mean, data visualization, presenting your information, communicating your thoughts, these are all part of being an effective economist. Mm -hmm. So I include quality as part of my uh, evaluation process. That is really interesting. I, um, there's a homework that I have. Uh, so I teach stats and, and one year I did this uh, audio homework in which they had to respond to a question in audio rather than writing it. Um, and it was my less successful in that um, it gets to students talking, but it was a really hard to grade it. And then they, they kind of just read what they would have written and like it didn't do the job. So then I changed it this year to uh, uh, an oral version of the homework where we go through the homework that they've done orally. And I kind of like pretend I'm someone who doesn't know anything about stats and have that conversation. And that's to me trying to get at this idea of like, can I train you and practice in communicating these ideas? But it doesn't get to this other point, which is like, well, but you also are going to need skills to do that um, when it comes to like quality of the work, right? Um, so that's a really interesting point that you're saying there, which, which, you know, I guess I'm trying to train them in one thing, but I haven't thought about like, well, the other part, right? So that's interesting. Yeah. So uh, often when with these projects, especially semester long projects, your students start to think of you as the evaluator and they're only now talking to you as the evaluator of their project. And to me, that breaks some of the learning process because now students are coming to ask me, hey, how are you going to evaluate this specific mm -hmm. situation? Mm -hmm. So something that I've been war like experimenting with is outside judges, right? Mm. And what I find is students now start to seek me as a resource and ask me more open-ended oh, questions. That's so smart. And are these yeah. outside judges like other academics or do you find just like smart non-academics so they feel like that? have to explain it to our audience. Yeah, so it, it depends on the project. I have a data visualization project that my students just got done. I'm, the experimental class that I'm teaching this semester is how do you access publicly available data sets? 
how do you create data visualizations through Tableau and other resources, and then coding in Stata. Um, so the, the data visualization part of it, I'm like, you know, I've been working with these students for five, six weeks right now. Let me get some academics and people from the public, because the data visualization assignment is supposed to be uh, an assignment that is accessible to somebody that's just walking by and sees your data visualization. Do you grab their attention? Do you tell them something informative? Is And then I add a social media component to it because I'm a social media fan. Mm -hmm. I'm like, is it a shareable data viz? Right. right? So that's part of the rubric that uh, the evaluators have to think about. Like, is this something that we share on their social media platforms? Mm -hmm. So there is some structure that you give them beforehand exactly. and they can use it. But I, I, I like the, to be the framing of them stop seeing you as your evaluator and seeing you as a research, yeah. which I think is super important. Um, what about other, other kinds of innovations or new things that you're seeing in this teaching space? I have a presentation end of May uh, to talk to the Pennsylvania Economic Association um, as, a, as their keynote speaker, and they wanted me to talk about the changing landscape of education or econ education specifically due to COVID. So that's taking up a lot of my time. And the, the punchline that I'm thinking about over here and just looking around me in, in the higher ed is uh, the cat is out of the bag, right? So we, all we keep on talking about, oh, we're going to go back to normal. I'm not sure that this virtual life is going to be much different. Mm -hmm. And I was talking to my students the other day and they're like, oh, Dr. A, I can't wait till fall and we're in person again. And I'm like, but are you going to expect this online component to, lead, to, to be over with? Mm -hmm. And they're like, yeah, of course. You know, if things are back to normal, we're back to normal. I'm mm -hmm. like, all right, so let's, let's go through this thought exercise. You miss class. You can't make it. What do you, you send me an email. What do you say right. in that email? And they're like, oh, you know, sorry, I missed class. I was like, that's it? They're like, um, yeah, that's it. I'm like, you won't say, you know, usually you would say something like, uh, what did I miss in class? They're like, yeah, right. yeah, I'd want to know what I miss in class. But I'm like, but today, wouldn't you just say, why isn't the class recorded? Right. right? So this whole idea of we won't have a virtual presence once we go back to, to quote unquote normal is, a, I think, is something that we are not fully understanding. So if virtual and video and audio are going to be part of our lives going forward, I really think that we need to be thinking about how to be better in front of camera, right? Mm -hmm. How do we communicate more effectively? How do we engage? How do we stop creating an hour and 30 minute presentations for our students to watch? So that that's where I think a lot of innovations are going to or at least I hope, will go from an administrative standpoint. Mm -hmm. uh, I know at Northern Kentucky University, we're already talking about our online strategy moving forward. So let's talk a little bit about that, which is the, this video component. So how I, I, I'm getting a sense that then if we go back, the concept of, of a hybrid world where there's components of, about the class that are, are great to have physical because you have a board and an explanation and the questions mm -hmm. is more natural. But then there's like this other added, you know, you know, virtual or video components. So how, how do you see some of that uh, mapping in, into a physical class? It's something I'm spending my time trying to think and, and envision. What, what I'll tell you, the reason why I'm spending my time is I believe this online world has increased access uh, for our students. It's increased access for me as well as a, you know, as a researcher, academic in a regional university. I'm invited to more 
presentations that I've ever been invited to. And I think it's because the, you know, the cost of having me is much lower. So people are willing to take that, and just to speak economic terms here, the risk of in, inviting me because, you know, the, the cost is so low. Um, and, and for my students, I'm seeing, you know, segments of our student body thrive in an online world. Um, so I worry by going back to normal that we are not thinking about uh, the access component. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I, I see us investing a lot, some, some institutions at a quicker rate than others in developing the infrastructure for everything to be live streamed mm -hmm. to our students, recorded simultaneously. Um, you know, we're talking about how to have uh, tech support for every class. Um, you know, some of these things that happen at larger R1 schools are being discussed in regional universities now. The other thing, too, that I wanted to ask you about is I think something that you you kind of like led, led the march on this, which is the econ games. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is and maybe some background of like how that came about and, and what other people in other universities can learn from that experience? The, the story of the econ games is a story of listening to students. So I, I was advising the, the econ club at that time and just talking to students. I think it was like eight of us in a room. And I asked them what was missing in their education. And one, one of the students was like, you know, I, I'm learning all these amazing things in the classroom, but I don't see the application to the business world, mm. right? Mm. Like how, how am I going to have a job in a business world? And through my efforts with the Center for Economic Education and talking to industry, what I notice and, and recruiting econ students as well, what I notice is the business world also doesn't know how to use undergrad econ students. Like what jobs are we gonna get them? And being in Cincinnati, I mean, Cincinnati is a big market research uh, city. Uh, so our students technically should have a quick path into, into these uh, research analyst positions, mm -hmm. but none of the jobs had econ as a you know, possible major. So if they don't have econ as a possible major, our econ students don't apply to it. So there's obviously an information uh, issue. So we started this uh, econ games, uh, my colleague and I, Darshak Patel, Darshak's at University of Kentucky. And we said, you know what, can we bring in businesses to challenge our students to solve a problem that their employees would, right? So, yeah. so a data-oriented project. And for a couple of years, we had a data collaborator, 8451, which is a market researching, a research firm for Kroger. And they would bring in their data and they would ask our students exactly what they would ask uh, of people applying to 8451 to complete like as a task. And our students would have six hours live right there mm -hmm. to complete it. Mm -hmm. So you'd see students across campus scattered in front of laptops. They got their data there for the first time. They're dealing with, you know, 1.5 million observations. Their computers mm -hmm. are crashing. They're trying to figure out what to do. Right. And then at the end of the day, they present to the, the, the firm that we have collaborated with. And what we notice is now the firm knows what econ students are capable of. That's one. But more importantly, our students now could envision a job that they could go into. Right. Mm -hmm. And this empowered them and gave them a little bit more excitement about their major. So we thought we were on to something. So we've expanded it this year. Our, um, uh, our interest was more on the policy side of it. So we thought, mm -hmm. let's collaborate with uh, the Federal Reserve Bank of Cleveland. So that who that's who our data collaborator was. 
we had 18 universities from from North America and mm -hmm. Europe, mm -hmm. 266 students. And, uh, you know, they, they competed, they presented. The prompt was, tell us something about a segment of the U.S. economy and how it was impacted by COVID. And they gave them like a huge data set with time series data. Um, think about everything, small business, health, uh, stock uh, uh, prices, indices, mm -hmm. and so on. And the students had to come up with an eight-minute presentation. Think mm -hmm. of a YouTube video. Right, 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 right. That's super interesting. That's really cool. And, you know, I like 8451 a lot. One of my, actually, one of my econ friends from Miami of Ohio yeah. is their director of data science. Um, but, man, what a cool way to partner with the Fed. Yeah. I feel like that's just such a nice opportunity to show all the different ways to these students that uh, the tools of economics can be applied to, you know, Every, right. everything that we do as people. Yeah. Right. We're really grateful for the collaboration with the Federal Reserve Bank of Cleveland. They made their RAs available. Uh, so our students now met RAs that, you know, hopefully mm -hmm. they'd want to be in their position one day. So it's just a, a, a my, my friend Darshaw calls it internship for a day, except this time we extended <laughs> it to like a, a weekend. So it's, uh, it, it's fun. We're expanding it. We think we're on to something over here. So we're going to start to develop monthly case studies we our goal is to have an econ games club at each university oh and then, super cool. and then just have case studies and upskill students i don't know about your institution but at my institution students really don't get to learn how to code in stata unless they have mm -hmm. uh, a faculty that's going to advise uh, be an advisor for a research project right and i just think there's an equity and access issue there so i want to make it accessible to as many people to learn how to code in stata so we're going to create mini courses Mm -hmm. to go with that we have a summer data camp coming up so wow yeah that's awesome um that is great i i like that and and i think also another maybe small takeaway too is is trying to craft some of those assignments in class as a mini version of those could be really super useful um i can also see like as you learn more about each episode of the econ games that you can start creating like write a resource where other people can go and be like, okay, I can do this just for my class, but I make it a smaller version, um, which is really, really cool and really interesting. Um, and then there is something else that I think you, you're working on and, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but something called Econ Beats. Uh, what is that about? Econ Beats was an old project that I had started. And the idea was, can we get students to, this is for principal level courses uh, specifically, can we get students to think about the language of economics in a more creative way? Um, so I uh, challenged my students to remake popular songs into oh. economic terms, right? Okay. And talking about production, uh, the production quality, what we did to make it transdisciplinary, because it's important to know the language of your institution and the institution at NKU at that time, our theme was transdisciplinary education. Mm -hmm. So I reached out to my colleagues in electronic media and broadcasting and said, can we make this a joint project? Your students shoot the video. Mm. My students write the lyrics and perform the song. <laughs> and at the end of the semester, we all would uh, meet up in what we call the digitorium, big auditorium, digital uh, screen. Mm -hmm. And then we would watch, I think it was eight to 10 videos a semester. And then they okay. would vote oh, nice. poll everywhere, top three. And then we would have judges to rank them first, second, and third. But it was a way to get people to think of economics beyond the, you know, that whenever you talk to anybody about economics, what do they say? Oh, I have a friend that took economics. Oh, oh my God, you're taking economics. That's a horrible subject. I wanted to change that language, right? How okay. can we make economic the buzz 
and you know we had high school students start to attend this uh, oh, uh, end of semester. It was a good recruiting um, method. Right. I had to stop econ beats because um, my my teaching load dropped, mm. and um, I just didn't have that many students to be able to to do gotcha. it. If people want to find more about this topic to learn, where where do you think you should you want to send them? Like, what's a good place to start? I mean, if you want to talk about traditional ways, my website, abdullahalbarani.com. Uh, if you're on Twitter, Instagram, uh, or YouTube, uh, all of them have the similar handle, at Dr. A. Al-Barani. Um, you know, a, part, a large part of what I do is outreach, uh, teacher workshops. Uh, if you're interested, I'm always up for a conversation. Thank you so much for those insights. Every week, we like to ask our guests for our recommendation of the week. This can be anything, a podcast, a command, an app, a song, a quote, a book, kitchen recipe, anything that improves your life in a small way. Abdullah, what is your recommendation of the week? My recommendation is something that I swear by, and that's paper-like for my iPad. Oh, yeah. What is, what is this? Say it again. It's paper-like. It's a it's a screen protector uh, oh. that adds a little bit of a friction to your uh, pen on the on the iPad, so that uh, it feels like you're actually writing. One of the biggest issues I had, you know, especially shifting uh, to virtual, is graphing on an iPad just didn't feel natural. That uh, feeling was oh. a little bit off. Paper-like adds that uh, friction and um, makes it easier for me to. Uh, drop properly. That's cool. I've never heard of that. I will I will buy that and check it out because I have the same gripe when I'm like teaching, right? It's like, I'll go too fast and then the lines will be all weird. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's also something that I see a lot in YouTube. <laughs> it's fun to it is. I know about <laughs> it. But I've never seen it. I'm glad that you now endorse it as well because I've always been interested about it. So that's good. Um, Alex, what about you? What is your recommendation of the week? So mine is mine is very simple, um, and I'm actually surprised I've never given it before. I've since mid college, maybe like 2007 or something, I've been using the same kind of pen, and it's a cheapo kind of pen, and I love it. It's called the Uniball Power Tank, and it's like just simple. It's not like ten dollars or something. Um, right. You can buy it on Amazon, but it writes upside down. It writes. It's like the ink is waterproof. Like. Uh, it, it it clicks real nice. I don't know. Like, it's just like a good quality <laughs> pen. And it's like, I think it costs like 75 cents or something. Oh. And uh, I don't know. I don't want to use another kind of pen ever again. Awesome. We're, we're also not sponsored by them. So just as we'll free, take the money though. We'll take the money if you want to sponsor us. <laughs> yeah. Um, what about you, Sebastian? My recommendation of the week. Uh, so I think I'm going to go with something aesthetic, a little bit different. So I really love a good aesthetic to get to work. Like I like my desk to be clean and to look kind of cool. And if you're into that, my recommendation is to check D brands. So the letter D and then brands. And really, it's just like color stickers for your devices, like your laptop or your Apple Pencil and your iPad. Um, why would you do this? Well, if I'm going to stare at the top of my laptop the whole time, I want it to be something at least entertaining and happy. So mine is a bright yellow. I can't show you guys in the podcast. Uh, but I also have, like, for example, my Apple Pencil with the skin that looks like a pencil. And I don't know. It's just fun. It's all aesthetic. Uh, yeah, it's a little bit of money, but uh, it, it improves my life in that I like seeing 
how that works. And then people are always like, oh my gosh, is that an actual pencil? And I'm like, no, it's my Apple pencil. So that will be my recommendation of the week. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here with us today. Uh, well, if people wanted to find more about your work, you're ready to give us a link. So we'll put all of those in the show notes. That's all that we have for you folks today. Make sure you subscribe and leave us a review. And thank you for tuning in. Bye. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for having me.